to another BritFlix.com podcast. My name's Stuart Wright, and today I've got with me Alex Marks. Hello, Alex. Hi, Stuart. How are you? I'm doing very well. I'm doing very well. We, uh, we both managed to miss each other at uh, Cannes Film Festival this year, but we both went. Yeah, yeah, I had a great time. As did I, as did I. Now, what's the name of the film that we are talking about? Uh, we're talking about a film called Miraculous Isabella. Okay, now that's at, the, at this present moment in time, we're not talking about a film that's been produced. We're talking about a film that's sort of at its what first draft. Yeah, I submitted my first draft about a week ago. So uh, wow, so we are literally hot off the press in terms of those early stages of how a film gets made. Yeah, so, very much. So do you want to just for the, for the audience's benefit, do you want to give us a brief synopsis as to what that's about? Sure. Um, so it's it's a biopic about a woman called Isabella Blow who uh, I've discovered about 50% of people I talk to have heard of. I was not one of those 50% when I... Uh, I, I wasn't when you introduced the name to me either, so I'll, I'll be in the 50% that didn't know. Right. Um, well, she was a fashion icon. Um, so professionally, she was a stylist and editor for magazines. She worked at um, Tatler Magazine and Vogue, both in the UK and the US, and... She ended up being the the editor of um, the Sunday Times Style Supplement. Okay. Um, so that's kind of what she did day to day, if you like. But she's really most famous for uh, discovering and nurturing young talent. Um, the most famous being Alexander McQueen, uh, the designer. And she found him as a student and uh, saw his graduation show and was so sort of bowled over by it that she ended up buying the entire collection which is sort of unheard of for a student. Mm. Um, a month later, he was in Vogue magazine. And um, so he, he's kind of a central part of the story that I'm telling. Um, but there's a, there's a milliner hat maker called Philip Tracy, who's probably the most sort of renowned milliner in the world now. He makes, you know, hats for Camilla and uh, <laughs> Prince Charles's wife and people like that. So I get top uh, of the shop there. I get top of the shop. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, uh, and he, he was also a student when, when she found him, and uh, he they became friends because he designed the, the headdress for her wedding. Right. So, um, but she also discovered Sophie Dahl um, and a bunch of other models, a bunch of other designers. So, yeah, she had this uh, sort of uncanny ability to spot talent from a mile off and really develop that talent and collaborate and work with these people for them to achieve, um, you know, international success. And not uh, to ask a stupid question here, this is the story about someone that's now passed away, yeah? Yeah, sadly, um, she uh, committed suicide in 2007. Okay. After seven unsuccessful attempts. Um, so, although, ultimately, it's, it's, a, it's a tragic story, um, the reason it's, it's entitled Miraculous Isabella is because although her life was very difficult and she came up against a lot of challenges, she was someone who was able to turn those situations around to her benefit. And through her hard work and her vision, she was able to create uh, amazing situations out of disastrous sort of lead ups. Yeah, really. yeah, yeah. Um, and I think partly that's to do with, um, you know, she, she suffered from mental health issues. Um, she was diagnosed as bipolar. Mm. 
So she experienced these, you know, these manic, exciting highs where she was the most enthusiastic and generous and fun person to be around. And then she would experience these crashing lows where, you know, life didn't really seem to be worth living. Um, so her, her life did kind of take this roller coaster ride. And it's, I'm very lucky. It's, it's fantastic material. Sounds, sort of, yeah, sounds, I've, I've sort of fallen in love with her, basically. Um, who is an incredible... She, she was just an incredible person, I think, an extraordinary person. You, you as a writer, this is your first feature writing gig, is that right? Yeah, this is my first gig. I've written a couple of spec scripts in the past, um, but this is the first time I've been commissioned to write something, yeah. Okay, so let's just, let's just think about that timeline then. So, you, so you're a actor-turned-writer. Yeah, that's right. Um, do you want to give us some sort of the genesis there? So what was, what was it that's... How, how, how does a writer start to see... Sorry, how does an actor start to sort of see writing as an option as part of their kind of profession? Well, it's a fun one. Um, I, I guess I've been acting since I was a little kid. And, okay. Um, when I was about 15, I decided that I wanted to, you know, pursue this as a career. Hmm. And I guess, you know, I was always into English literature and stuff like that and reading reading plays and things to begin with. I mean, I, I was always obsessed with cinema, but I didn't really see how, uh, because most of the cinema I saw was American. I didn't really see how it was that I was going to get into that world. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I was really very interested in theatre growing up. And uh, when I was at university, I wrote my first play. Um, I had a very good friend at uni who was a year older than I am um, called Lucy Kirkwood. Okay. Who, wrote uh, a play called Chimerica last year that won... Oh, yeah, 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 I saw that. I, saw that. I didn't see the play, but I saw the posters. Um, so she, she's a phenomenally talented writer and also sort of, at university at least, did, did a lot of acting and a lot of comedy improv stuff. Nope. And she wrote this play that I was in. She wrote a couple of plays that I was in. And I was just struck by how good she was. And I thought, well, you know, she's cleverer than I am, but <laughs> maybe, maybe I could do something. So I wrote this play and it uh, it went down very well and we did it as a university production and then took it to the Fringe and then somebody picked it up and performed it at the Orange Tree Theatre in London. Wow. Uh, I didn't actually see that production. but uh, So I started writing then and then, to be honest, I didn't really write anything for a little while because um, I sort of got to... Well, I went to New York and did some acting training okay. and then when I... And I sort of threw myself into fringe theatre um, and was doing lots of plays and and things. And then I, I started doing more and more kind of short films and commercials and working more with camera. Yeah. And I was getting slightly frustrated with the parts I was being offered, all the parts I was getting. Um, some of them, I felt like I could, I felt like I had more to bring to the table, basically. So I ended up writing my first short film script. Right. And so I was, I was hunting around for somebody to direct that. And my mate, uh, Gabriel Bissett-Smith, who's a very talented sort of multi-hyphenate comedian, actor, writer, director type. <laughs> um, he, he said, I was having coffee with him one day, and he said, well, why don't you just direct it? And I said, well, I want to be in it. And he said, so. And so out of that conversation, I basically grew some balls and, and decided that I should just get on with it myself. Right. Um, and I've now made three short films as a writer-director. Um, 
and yeah, written a couple of spec scripts, and then um, I guess this this opportunity came to me. I went to Toronto to the film festival last year. Yeah, um, uh, a friend of mine called Sam very kindly invited me, and um, there I met this producer who's commissioned me to to write this this script, um, and we met you know socially and just got on very well, and and you know had a few drinks together and just hung out for a few days and, and became friends really. Mm. Um, and then we went and watched uh, a documentary that came out recently. It didn't have a very wide release, unfortunately, but um, it was called Little Girl Blue. And it's a Janis Joplin documentary. Right. Uh, it's a beautiful film. And we watched that together. And afterwards we ended up having this, this sort of quite intense conversation about mental illness and about, about suicide specifically. And as we were having this conversation, he was sort of looking at me a bit funny. <laughs> and I didn't know why. And later on that day, he started talking about this project. Okay. Um, and, you know, although I hadn't heard of Isabella before, um, as soon as he started talking about her, I sort of thought, wow, there's, there's a lot here. Um, and I think she, she came from a very aristocratic family. And I don't come from an aristocratic family at all, but I, I did go to private school and so I knew a fair amount of people from that sort of background yeah but I think he sort of recognized that you know maybe I would have an insight into the world as a um quote-unquote posh English guy yeah uh, and uh yeah so we started talking about it and then um he came to London to visit and we talked about it a bit more and then I went out to LA having prepared a, a treatment for him um, and he read the treatment and seemed to really like it, and that's when we signed the contract. And um, yeah, so I've been I've been writing this first. So what was this? Just give us give us a sense of the timeline then. So are you talking Toronto 2015? Yeah, yeah. Blimey, O'Reilly. So we're in May 2016. So this is this is a fairly sort of in terms of the traditional glacial pace of um, film. You've yeah, kind, you've kind of done the speed day version. Yeah, kind of. Yeah, <laughs> you know, not so. Not, and it's not. I don't mean that. I mean that as a massive compliment. You know, it's kind of. It's uh, you know, we all wish we could um, meet people, get on with them, them then offer work. You then get the work, and now as we're talking, you've produced the work. So that's kind of the perfect scenario. Um, so, yeah, it's, so I feel well, very about it because you know it, it felt like it came out of a moment of of synchronicity, which is something that I. I'm a big sort of believer in these kind of coincidental events that seem to have meaning, although mm. they have no sort of causal relationship. But yeah, it just it just seemed like we we clicked and we understood each other. And you know, to be honest with you, the part that freaked me out was he he actually asked me to write it before he'd even read anything that I'd written. Yeah. So that's uh, kind of so, so in that sense, the measure of you was the conversations he's had with you. And the opinions he'd gathered from you on this subject that yeah I guess so and specifically this this conversation we had about about mental illness and of suicide. course yeah um, and so yeah when you first started talking about it um, I was thinking well this is a bit weird I don't know if this this is uh, if this is real really because he mentioned that he'd asked Abby Morgan to write this script right he'd been too busy. And Abby Morgan is one of my favourite writers. Um, if not, one of mine. <laughs> probably my favourite writer, actually, working in, in film and TV. Yeah. Uh, but when he said that, I, of course, crapped myself. Um, 
<laughs> and now you're asking me, and you don't even. You know, <laughs> don't be so, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it felt very strange to begin with, but it's it's took me a little bit of time to to get used to the fact that this this might actually be a real thing. And um, you know, when when he flew me out to LA, I was like, oh, okay, this mm. is this is actually happening. Mm. You know, we've talked before about you know. Uh, your sort of insecurity as as an artist and as a writer and an actor, and the fact that that doesn't necessarily go away. Yeah. So I was I was kind of like, is this really happening? Because this is a you know a dream for me mm. to write something that I think is a very important story to be telling, as well as an, an entertaining and sort of beautiful story. Like, you know, I, I feel like there is something in the air at the moment about about mental illness and the fact that it is still such a stigma and such a taboo and it's widely misunderstood. And, um, so I think, yeah, to get this opportunity has just been, uh, well, just amazing really. Um, so let's look, let's look at your process then. So when, so when you're getting to that point where, where the, the relationship thing has been cemented as it were, and you're now talking about the, the opportunity for you to write the screenplay and the first step in that process as you've just said there, was, was to prepare a treatment for it. Yeah. What was what, what was your approach to that treatment? Because obviously you, it, it's it's one thing to, to not know about a subject and then feel a great empathy towards what you learn in that brief conversation, but obviously then to prepare a treatment about their life story or an aspect of their life story yeah. is going to involve starting the research, I'm guessing. Absolutely, yeah. So that's the first thing I did when I got back from Toronto you know, we didn't actually sign the contract for another couple of months. Mm. But I was like, I don't want to let this opportunity slip away by being, you know, lazy. Yeah, <laughs> so no, no, sure. I just, I just jumped into to the research. So there's there's a couple of books that have been written about her. Um, one of whom, one of which is written by her husband, um, a guy called Detmar Blow, mm. uh, and he goes wrote it with with a guy called Tom Sykes. Um, and so I read that, and there's another fantastic profile about her written by a woman called Lauren Crow, Lauren Goldstein Crow, yeah. uh, New Yorker um, journalist. And so I read those, absorbed those, took notes of what I found interesting in those. But then there's also, you know, there's a, there's a documentary about her relationship with Alexander McQueen that I found online. There's a bunch of interviews uh, that she gave uh, there's a lot of interviews that her friends gave after she she passed away, talking about her life and who she was and what she was like. And so I, I guess really I was just absorbing as much as I possibly could from the the material available to me, basically. Mm. Um, and I was keeping notes, but not in a kind of scientific historical way, just sort of like, oh, well, I find that interesting. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. It was things that jumped out at me about her and events that had ha happened to her that I was like, well, that, that's dramatic. You know, that's that's a cinematic scene right there. So then what I started doing was thinking, OK, well, you know, obviously I've seen quite a lot of biopics over the years and uh, the ones that I like and the ones that I don't like um, – and I thought that one thing that I didn't want to do is try and do her entire life. You know, right, OK. I was going to ask that. How do you, how do you narrow it down to do a film? Yeah. So, I mean, she, she 
passed when she was 48 years old um and i was like, okay i've got 90 minutes 120 minutes sort of max yeah. uh how am i gonna fit 48 years into that of course yeah um and you know i, I think that people's lives go in in various <coughs> Uh, being a writer, I, this is probably a bit pretentious, but I kind of see people's lives as working in a sort of act structure. And I felt that the first act of her life, though fascinating and very interesting, was not was not the meat of this story, really, in terms of audiences who are going to go and watch this film. What is it that about her that they know that they want the story to be about, in a way? Mm. Um and I, I figured that that was really when she started working in, in fashion sort of full time. Um, because, yeah, she's famous for being a fashion icon and her most famous relationships are with people, uh, you know, her husband and friends accepted that they're, they're with fashion people. So I sort of was thinking, well, how does this work? And in her 20s, she lived in America for a little while. Okay. Uh, and she married her first husband uh, in the States. And they uh, they moved from Texas to New York, and she was living in New York for a while. And they they kind of grew apart and ended up getting divorced. Um, and then when she came back to the UK, having worked for Anna Wintour uh, at Vogue, she was um, Anna Wintour, the editor of Vogue's um, assistant for a while. Okay. Um, and that didn't last very long because she really didn't have the skill set uh, <laughs> that's in line with being an assistant, i.e., sort of organisation and. <laughs> Yeah, organization basically and and also maybe working to Anna Wintour yeah yeah so she, she lost that job and Anna Wintour moved her to a different desk to this guy called Leon Andre Tully who then also fired her uh for going on holiday for a couple of weeks and not announcing that she was going for a couple of weeks and brilliant not showing up for work um so she moved back to London but Anna obviously recognized that she had an extraordinary sort of creative talent, if not an organisational one. Hmm. Um, so she then ended up getting her an interview at, at Tatler magazine. Okay. So that's that's kind of where I start my story is, is when she's come back from the States. Because oh, okay. To have that in there as well, suddenly you're pushing, you're pushing a lot into the first, the first act. Um, and it, it just so happened when I sort of said, okay, well, if I look at, sort of 28 to 48, the last 20 years of her life, if I, because I, I mapped out, I did timelines and things. So yeah. I did a career timeline. I did a marriage timeline. I did a relationship with McQueen timeline. I did a relationship with Philip Tracy timeline. Yeah. And the timeline of just other stuff that happened. Mm. And when I sort of put those all together into one kind of long thing with, events and years and months and what was happening when and I sort of looked at it there were these there were these really kind of seismic events that happened to her um that sort of fell quite neatly into a sort of okay well that could be an act one break and that could be a midpoint and that could be an act two break and I, I sort of it felt a bit like uh you know I, I knew what the structure of the film needed to look like and then yeah. I I sort of picked up, it was a bit like making a bed. I picked up the sheet and sort of swung it in the air and dropped it on this kind of framework and it just fit perfectly, um, which is just kind of coincidence that she happened to have had these things happen to her at roughly the right 
moments in her life to fit into this this very sort of cinematic structure. Um, so that was very lucky. And then from there, I... Um, I, like, I, I like the way you described that as very lucky. <laughs> Well, that, when, when you say that, do you mean do you mean that you weren't having to over dramatize what is in fact the facts? You were able to use the facts to be the drama. Basically, yeah. Yeah, basically. yeah. So because she she had quite a her career was quite up and down. So she basically lost every job she ever had um, because she was unwilling or unable to to work in the conventional way that. Um, you know, the fashion industry had started to work. So I think when she first started out at Vogue in New York, um, there there was a, a real sense of, like, we're doing something artistic here. We're, we're creative artists, and the photographs that we put together of these clothes, you know, they're, they're expressing something. And I think during the sort of late 80s, early 90s, things shifted in the world of fashion, and it became much more about the money and, you know, these individual fashion houses that had traditionally been family owned were suddenly being bought up by these large conglomerate groups. And instead of the, you know, 90 year old designer who's been doing the clothes for many years and being helped out by his son, suddenly these, these places were being run by guys in suits. Um, yeah. The, co- the corporatization of, of high fashion is, is, is a really interesting transition. It, it would be, it, w- it would be interesting to see someone who's because stra- clearly what you've got is a character here, that straddles the two worlds. Absolutely. Uh, I, me- I remember rereading um, American Psycho. Oh, yeah. And suddenly all the brands I know now, because they're yeah. on the high street, when I first read it in the late 80s, I'd never heard of Donna Karen. <laughs> right, exactly, exactly. But Donna Karen, you can see on a high street now, is a shop, which is kind yeah. of insane. Well, uh, same with McQueen, you know. Uh, yeah, she very much did straddle that transition. Mm. That's That's where I think, you know her life is very interesting. She, she straddled a couple of worlds. So because she came from this aristocratic family that dates back to the 12th century and, you know, she, uh, their family home was this place called Doddington Hall, which is this enormous pile. And, um, but she was, you know, aristocracy in, in the 20th century and yeah. I'd watched Downton Abbey, but that kind of slide into, normality in a way you know these these people who had households of 50 odd staff you know the staff gets cut down as the money runs out and suddenly they're having to accept that they're not um they're not as special as they've been led to believe in a sense and i'm not trying to take anything away from anyone but no no they kind of i guess the reveal was that you're very asset rich and you've got no cash so it doesn't really in the modern world doesn't do you very far does it no. So post First World War and, and particularly the Second World War, you know, a lot of those families lost their money. Um, and so they, they were kind of the celebrities before the rise of the cult of celebrity. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Isabella, in a sense, became a celebrity. So she, I, I feel like she kind of leapt from this sinking ship into this this ship that was being built. Um and so I, th- I think that, that straddling of those two worlds is very interesting as well. There are a couple of themes emerging here from is what you're telling us, because, I mean, obviously the, head- the headline one which we started with is which this, is this kind of the way, the way mental illness is either portrayed or is treated by modern society, which is, I think, is right. a, I guess that's, is that, is that a key theme of the film? 
Yeah, it is for me. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So, but also, but but also, what you brought into this is that the 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 idea of the kind of the 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 end of kind of the the, the sort of the the landed gentry as was, and also oh. I guess where mental illness would have been eccentricity in in old money, wouldn't it? In a sense, mental illness wasn't really something that you you you, you described. It was their eccentric, and 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 obviously England, Britain is. Is full of, you know, in the before before weird and mental illness became the way you describe it. He's he or she's eccentric was a way was a perfectly palatable way to describe someone, wasn't it? In, in absolutely, and and Isabella was always described as being eccentric. Right. Okay. You know, so I think that that's that's part of the, the issue and obviously cre- and creatives are kind of at the heart of what is eccentric because you're. You're not doing. You're not making widgets. You're, there's expression, and so therefore, eccentricity is often tolerated a lot more because of what you're sick, what the perception is of what you're involved with, isn't it? Yeah, or even rewarded. You okay. Know. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, yeah, she was she was perceived to be eccentric. Now, she was diagnosed quite late in life with with bipolar. Um, so, obviously, this is something she'd been kind of struggling with I think um for for a lot of her life but to actually have a label slapped on it in her sort of mid-30s um and I'm just thinking sorry Alex is 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 that um obviously eccentric eccentricity equals light mental mm. illness equals dark so obviously light gives you chance for humor dark is tragedy and dismay so how how in the writing of this do you balance those those two elements in terms of this character? Well, I think, you know, she was a very witty, very entertaining, very sort of outrageous person. And that's that's how people remember her fondly, you know. Okay. This kind of um, joie de vivre and, and excitement about things and, and deep passion. But I think, as is common with a lot of people who have manic depression, bipolar, it's, it's debatable what we're supposed to call it these days. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, the, the lows don't get seen because, you know, when you're in those crushing periods of depression, you tend to sort of hide away. Of uh, so, you know, she would just disappear for a little while and people wouldn't really think a huge amount of it necessarily. But clearly she was she was struggling with her demons. Um, and so I, I think that. It is a balance of of light and dark because that eccentric element, the manic phases that she experienced, were very light and and very exciting and very fun, and um, and then the the darkness would come. And so, what I've tried to do is uh, have this kind of ebb and flow, almost like a sort of roller coaster thing that weaves through the the structure of the film. Um, these kinds of up and downs. Um, I guess as well because you're doing the film as opposed to what we see in real life, which is Isabella's life, which we yeah. see. We only saw the public elements. Obviously, you're writing the biopic, so therefore you get the privilege, for a better word, to show us the, the, when the roller coaster goes down. Which is like you say, they're the moments where she would shy away from the public eye. But obviously, right. to tell the story, you're going. This is why she shied away from the public eye. Right, absolutely, um, and I guess uh, yeah, the the luck there is is having access to this book written by her husband. Um, okay, okay. Obviously, he has insight into her personal life rather than just her professional life. Of course, his his book kind of covers both. Um, 
But uh, yeah, so that that was really useful. If you don't already subscribe to Britflix, just sign up for free at iTunes, and you'll get the next episode right after we launch it. Or follow at Britflix on Twitter for links to the podcast to stream from the website directly. Thank you. How did you how do you find that the because presumably the, the speculative stuff you've written before were biopics, yeah? No, they weren't. No. Okay, so how how did you find that that the the, the challenge of writing a biopic, which obviously is to kind of like you know, you've described quite well how you try to identify what were the key things that you wanted to, that a you could cover and b you wanted yeah. to cover, but also that 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 there must have come bits of when you're writing where you're having to go okay to make this go with this I need to add something that never you know it's like either I need to meld things together into mm. one moment that maybe spanned a couple of years or whatever to make yeah. the, the, the outcome make sense. You know, what were, what were the main sort of storytelling challenges for you outside of the fortunate that like you describe as a fortunate way it all sort of seemed to stack up as a kind of act one, two, three, but yeah. then clearly when you got into the execution of it, it wouldn't have been as easy as just looking at these timelines. So what were those challenges for you from a storytelling point of view? Well, I suppose, um, yeah, trying to work out what my, <coughs> you know, what, what is it that, interest me about this this story and mm. what do I think is important here yeah and yeah the mental health is obviously a big thing the the nature of the fashion industry which again I knew very very little about to be yeah. perfectly honest fine yeah uh, and I'm now something of an expert in 90s fashion uh, <laughs> like, sort of heyday of her career um so like I say, it really was very lucky the way that it all it all sort of fit together. And what I tried to do in my first draft is stick really as, as close to the facts as as is possible, really. So mm. there's, there's a couple of characters that I've combined um, for ease, but usually, uh, you know, one half of that character that I've combined is a real person, and the other one that is somebody who I've invented for convenience. Mm. Um, and I've made those into the same person. But for the most part, I have tried as much as possible to, to follow what I know to be true. Or okay. at least what I know to be true from somebody else trying to write the truth. Sure, fine. fine. So what, what was, in terms of the process then, when you, when you say you, you, you prepared a treatment first... Yeah. What did that look like? Is that is that ten pages, forty pages, two that sides? That was twelve pages. So twelve um, pages outlining this, this this the idea of this story stroke timeline of the last twenty years that you yeah that you identified. So what I tried to do there was basically say, okay, if my screenplay is going to be about one hundred and twenty pages, yeah. then one of these pages represents ten pages. Got you. And on each one of these pages, there are six, seven, eight paragraphs outlining scenes. So I know that by the time I get to the end of page one, I should be roughly at page ten. Got I know you. that. Got you. And was and was that something that was was that something that went backwards and forwards between you and the producer, or was that like when you presented that, it was like, cool, that's exactly what I'm looking for. Let's go write a script. Yeah, more or less. I mean, I don't want to be funny, but. Uh, no, that's yeah, good. I mean, no, I mean, I think, you know, I don't think it should be any different, but I just, just, yeah. I'm just interested to know. And then, so therefore, from that day, and when you go, okay, let's write a screenplay, what was the time you were given from 
I want you, Alex, to write me a screenplay to This Is The Day I Want. Because, because I was, funny enough, I was listening to Script Notes podcast with John August, and he used an interesting terminology, which I'd never really thought about in terms of writing screenplays before, but it, it, it makes, it kind of makes us different from other jobs where most jobs you get paid for the time that you do. I.e., yeah. I'm going to buy you for three weeks. Yeah. Whereas if somebody gives you three weeks to write a script or gives you 12 weeks, they're basically yeah. saying the measure of what your work is is you deliver a draft. Yeah. Not You, you could spend an hour on it. As long as the draft is delivered on that day, you know, for better yeah. or for worse, that's yeah. the thing that you're going to be measured on. So what then was your what was your timeline then from treatment agreed to yeah. write start day A to draft delivered? So, uh, treatment agreed was sort of mid-December. Okay. When we signed the contract. Um, and I said that I would basically start writing at Christmas. Okay. Uh, so, because it's my first commission and because I'm a neurotic person, I sort of thought, well, I reckon I'm going to get this draft done by the end of February. Yeah. But... I want to give myself a bit more time for pootling around. Um, yeah. So what I did was when we when we put the contract together, I gave my f- first deadline to myself, and I chose my birthday because uh, I knew I wouldn't forget that. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> which is um, April eighteenth. Got you. So basically, I had four months to to kind of do it, and sure enough, I did get my first splash through draft done by the end of Feb. Uh, but then I had, you know, a, a few weeks to kind of go through that again. Um, I took out a couple of scenes. I wrote in a couple of extra scenes that weren't part of my treatment to kind of link things together and make more sense of it. Um, who, find... who do you, did you, did the conversation continue with the producer or do you have trusted friends who you go, can you give me some feedback on this and, yeah, so I, I, I mean, I, yeah, I showed, I showed my draft to a couple of people mm. uh, who both said, you know, this, this is good. Here's some things that I would think about. Right. I thought about those things, and some of them I took on board, and some of them I sort of thought, well, actually, I know the material better than you, and I can't really do that. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. So yeah, there were a couple of people, and then when I. So I, I guess the draft that I've handed in is really draft 1.2. Got uh, So I did another couple of passes beyond my first draft to kind of try and polish things up a bit, but still stick to um, as close as possible to, to what I understand actually happened. And I think what my second draft is going to be, um, you know, assuming that what I outlined in my treatment is still all right at, at sort of script level in terms of the, the shape and the, the size of the story. Um, what I want to do with my second draft is kind of go more inside her mind, um, which I've started to do. Mm. Uh, so I've got this device because she suffered from bipolar. One of the symptoms of, of bipolar is um, hallucinations. Okay. Uh, so I was very conscious of the fact that I, I didn't want to do flashbacks and I didn't want to do voiceover um, because I think they're both cheating a little bit. I've used both in the past um, and, you know, they're obviously very effective things, but I think within the context of a biopic, I didn't want to do it. So 
what I've got is this device where, in a sense, she experiences flashbacks, but not in the form of, of memories and sort of going into eight millimeter footage and like, oh, here's, here's Isabella as a child or whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, what I've done is, is I've had people from her past um, appear in her present. Uh, and I don't know if, if that makes sense. No, but... it does. No, it does. I've seen, I've seen not, not, not something exactly similar, but I remember seeing there's a film about a guy suffering from post-traumatic stress and he's right. sat, he's sat in his own apartment yeah. and he watches himself come into the room as a soldier raiding a house with it, with a band of men. So you see his hallucination as, as a terrifying yeah. action sequence. <laughs> well, yeah, that's, that's exactly the kind of thing. Yeah. So, and this is interesting, actually. Sorry, this is a bit of a side note. But, no, um, no, go on. When I first came up with this idea, I thought, oh, well, that's, that's kind of, that's got something to it. I quite like that. Mm. Um, I mentioned it to my mum, uh, and she said, oh, you, you should watch this um, show that's on at the moment called River. Right. Uh, which is a police procedural that was on a few months ago with uh, Stellan Skarsgård in, in the lead, playing okay. this guy, River. Rivers, I suppose. Yeah, um, no, I, that was and Abby Morgan wrote it, didn't she? That's right. So this is what's really weird is that part of not wanting to do voiceover and flashback was I don't think Abby would do that. <laughs> <laughs> so my mum mentions this program to me, and I watch it. And the first episode, there's there's these instances of him seeing people who aren't who aren't really there, mm. um, at least in other people's minds. Um, and I was like, yeah, this is exactly how I want to do it. And of course the credits roll and it's written by Abby Morgan. <laughs> I went, that feels pretty good. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, I think subconsciously I was thinking, what would Abby do? And, uh, hopefully she, she might've done something similar. So that's a, that's a, t- it's a tad meta that, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, it is a bit, bit meta, it is a bit meta, but I'm all about the meta. No, indeed. No, it's good. It's good. Well, that's a, I mean, this sounds like an, an amazing journey and obviously you're in, you, you've, you've got to the point where, where, where you've delivered that draft now. So can I, one, one question, one last question I'd like to ask, well, maybe not last question, but one question I'd definitely like to ask you before I forget is, and it's a very general one, but given you're an actor. Yeah. What do you think your actor's training has brought to your writer's toolkit that maybe, you know, just, and I don't mean this in a kind of show-offy way, but, but mm. in, in, when you speak to writers that don't have an actor's background, what, it just, what do you think it, it gives you as an edge or as an understanding of writing dramatic? Yeah, material? I think, I think there's two things really. Um, the one thing that I think is most useful and, and most different to, to writers who don't have an acting background is, is just dialogue. Okay. Uh, you know, because I, I'm mad and when I'm writing, I sit and kind of, you know, have these conversations with myself and having read a lot of scripts and performed a lot of scripts, um, I just have quite a clear idea of what good dialogue is and what bad dialogue is. Hmm. Mostly what bad dialogue is. So if I can get through a scene without going, oh God, that's rubbish, then I think it's all right. Um, Hmm. But, you know, occasionally I'll I'll be reading through something, kind of improvising with myself and just be like, I don't like that line. If I had to say that line, I wouldn't be be very happy. so I think that's the main thing is is a kind of grasp of how dialogue works and the, the rhythm of it and actually having it in your mouth, having to actually say it. Because I think sometimes as as writers, we sort of forget that 
somebody's actually going to have to do this thing. <laughs> you know, no, no, no. I mean, I remember reading, I don't know if you've ever read Sol Steen's on writing at all. He's, he's, he's a kind of famous uh, novel editor. And right. he, he describes dialogue as being a foreign language. Right. Because obviously, if I was, we were to transcribe this this conversation you and I have had, and then try to make it make, and then say, look, this is how people talk, yeah, and then an actor read us, there's, yeah, there's there's no drama in it. It's no, it'd be no. fairly, it'd end up being. I mean, look, it'd be interesting as as as, as a kind of lesson in what you've 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 been able to tell us about your experiences, but there is nothing dramatic about it. And he just talked to. He'd, I've never put it put so simply before. It's almost like every time somebody says something, it has to almost butt up against what the last person said. Yeah, kind of. Actually, I was talking to a friend yesterday, uh, my friend Maya. She mm. uh, was talking about um, different types of scenes. Yeah. For the life of me, I can't remember who she said said this, but that there are three types of scenes that exist. Go on. So there's, there's negotiation, mm-hmm. there's seduction, and there's friction. Okay, now that makes sense. So in some scenes... I guess this, if we were to transcribe this scene, this would be a negotiation scene where we're both kind of aiming for the same thing. We're both hoping to provide something of value to the audience. We're both hoping to to explain and get at the heart of what the craft of screenwriting is about in some way. Mm. We're on the same team, essentially. And yeah. so we're, we're pushing towards a shared goal. Yeah. Um, whereas with seduction, I might be trying to persuade you uh, that my way of of you know preparing for a biopic might is the right way you know and I'm trying to get you on board with my way of thinking. I mean, yeah, you're going to say, but even more simply, you might you or I might be trying to say things that just want the other person to like us. So our, and the other person doesn't, doesn't want to know. <laughs> and then there's friction scenes where it's an impasse. You know, it's it's a a, a check stalemate thing um, where neither of us is going to budge. And we're just going to slag it out, you know. Um, well, yeah. Also, I mean, that, that thing. It's what, what listeners don't get privy to is when before I start the podcast, I try and I explain that I'm not trying to get the scoop here. And yeah. it, it, where the friction will be, tell me who did this, you know. Yeah, except I wouldn't exactly. say it, I wouldn't say it in so many words. I'd be, but everything I'm doing is driving the fact that I want you to tell me that a lister one, two, or three is being touted for your movie, and I want to get that scoop. And you mm-hmm. know, you're not going to tell me. Yeah, absolutely. Um. <laughs> That's quite, I mean, it, it, it works though, but it, but it proves the point. I mean, I, I like I like the it's it, it's simple to think of it in those three ways because obviously you can go, oh yeah, but there's lots more different scenes than that. But actually, they do all boil down to there's a friction stroke impasse. There's a there's a want to make please someone and get them on your side, mm. and then and then there's the um, well, what what can we what, what can we get out, what can we get out of this? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So um, I've just mentioned that I don't know why I mentioned that, but. I, no, we were, talking about, we were talking about dialogue, and it just, just it, it flows naturally on from there. Because when you start writing dialogue, that's if the dialogue's meant to be, this is a scene that is at character A trying to get something from character B. Then mm. are they going to seduce them? Are they going to negotiate with them? Are they going to go in, you know, full tilt? And then yeah. th- there may be three ways of doing it. Yeah, yeah. They may they may do all three in this. In, you know, if it's a longer sequence, they may end up doing all three because obviously the bit that makes drama sort of escalate is where people change tactics. Mm, mm, mm. which, which well, in real life we don't do it <laughs> and then become a seduction and then become friction you know yeah and that's uh, kind of thing when you when you watch a film and you try when you when you deconstruct films mm. it's that's where i think films are different from real life 
Absolutely, yeah. But then, but also, weirdly, they're the bits that seem to feel the most naturalistic. It's kind of a real contradiction for me when I watch them, where somebody just says, I've killed your mother, blah, yeah. blah, blah, and then they end up sleeping together. You're like, how did that wouldn't happen in real life? But, but in the heat of that moment, you're kind of flying with whatever passion was in the context of those couple of scenes. Mm. And the film, it seems to work, because it takes the film... To the drama somewhere else, whereas real life doesn't have to make sense. That uh, Bill Martell said that one time, and I thought that was a uh, he's an American screenwriter. He said the difference between screenplays and real life is that real life doesn't have to make sense, whereas obviously a screenplay 90 to 120 pages has to make sense. Yeah, well, not only does it not have to make sense, it just doesn't. I think. <laughs> <laughs> real life is, is a complete mystery to me, and I so, think it'd be, it'd be, it'd be, part of the attraction of writing things is, is to try and make sense of the world, to try and give it meaning, um, you know, because we, we can impose that. We are, uh, without wanting to get too pretentious, we're kind of gods within that world. We no, without a doubt, no. no um, so, yeah, I think there's that. So that's that's the one thing that acting gave me. And I guess the other thing is um, understanding the the crux of a scene. So it is related to what we were just talking about. But, yeah. you know, when I, as an actor, get given a scene, you know, I'm trying to work out what it is that uh, the character's doing in the scene, you know, mm. whether it is that they're trying to, uh, you know, seduce their, their husband into doing whatever it is that they want them to do or whatever. So what are they doing? How, how do they feel um, about this? And that could be any number of things, uh, depending on the choices you want to make. Yeah. And then what, what does the character want? You know, what if this scene were to go exactly the way that my character that I'm playing wants it to go, how would it end? You know, would it end in um, the person pleading for forgiveness? Would it end in uh, them going out to dinner together? Would it end in them having sex? You know, like, mm -hmm. what is it that they want? And so then I can kind of back engineer that as a writer and think about those things before I start writing the scene um, in a rational way. And then when I sort of let rip with uh, the what I call talking to myself element of writing the scene, yeah, 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 yeah. Um, hopefully, hopefully that framework is there in place already. So, you know, I, I think it's it's the same thing, just looking at it from a different point of view in a way that an actor's job is to decode what the writer has presented to them. Um, because I think a lot of, with a good script, a lot of the actor's job is to uncover the subtext, uncover the unconscious stuff that's going on, mm -hmm. rather than just playing the line boldly as it's written. And so I think as a writer, it's kind of your job to lay those, those unconscious, subconscious, subtextual things in there for the actor to discover. So if, if you know what it is that the actor's looking for, then you can kind of give it to them as a writer, in a sense. Does that make sense? No, it does not, no, because I, I I I, if I can remember the actor, this would make have a lot more power in what I'm trying to say, but he, he talked about the fact that he likes to, if he gets the opportunity to ask writers to take out at least all the parentheticals in the dialogue and, mm. let, and let them work it out for themselves. Yeah. Well, uh, that's something that I, I don't really have very many parentheticals at all maybe there's about three in in this draft that i've written yeah precisely that reason because my acting training and i'm sorry to say this to a fellow writer but um has always encouraged me to just crush out anything any stage directions any uh way in which it should be said um and you may end up saying it in the way that the writer intended you to say it but i think 
that there's a certain element of, of alchemy that goes on when a writer is bringing their individual perspective and their experiences and their their sort of know-how to bear on something that somebody else has already created. Because a, a screenplay is a, you know, it's a framework, it's a blueprint. And I think it's up to the director and the actors to then flesh that out and give it life. Um, no, I agree, I agree. And, I think, and it's a hard thing, certainly for writers who aren't directing, because you kind of, there's a sense that you... You want to at least tell the director what you're thinking and certainly oh, the reader. But I oh, think in that process, you can forget, and it's easy to forget, that's why, why I wanted to ask the question about what you bring as, as an actor, is that you can forget that actually, no, an actor can bring a lot. Because if you do a table read, mm. you, you can learn tons about your character just by oh. the fact that somebody says it in a loud, deep voice. You're like, I never heard that before. And well, then suddenly you're kind of like, this character's got a life that you never knew they had. And that's just by somebody's just simple interpretation. Well, let me give you a really good example of that that's just popped into my head. My, the first short film that I made was a family drama. Uh, <coughs> Excuse me. That's right. Uh, and I, I was really very lucky to... I, I wrote the mother character um, for an actress called Kate Fahey, who I'd seen in Joanna Hogg's Archipelago, uh, previous to that. And I just thought that her performance was extraordinary and was very similar to what I wanted to kind of communicate with this character. So I, I wrote the character very much with her in mind and then was bowled over when she agreed to do it. And through her, I uh, managed to get Tim McEnany, um to, to play my dad in it. Um, and, you know, he's a huge hero of mine from, from my childhood and uh, Blackadder and things like that. Yeah. You know, uh, he'd be pissed off to hear me say that um, because obviously Blackadder was 30 years ago and he's done an extraordinary amount of excellent work since then in in more the dramatic form as well as the comedy form. Um, yeah, yeah, no, no, sure he is, yeah. But, um, yeah, I, I, I've always been a big fan of his, is, is the long and short of it. And um, Kate and he had done a play together years before and she said, well, what about, what about Tim for this? And I thought, oh. I mean, you know, if he, he agreed to do it, then that'd be amazing. And sure enough, he liked the script and he did agree to do it for no fee, which I was amazed by. Um, and there's this scene towards the end of the film, basically, where, you know, things sort of come to a head a bit. And it's this kind of middle class English family uh, who have gone through uh, a bereavement and they're, they're trying to cope with that and not doing a very good job. Right. And the, the son and the mother have a bit of a flare up and the son threatens to leave. And the father has this line just as he's about to, to walk out the door. He says, sit down and have some cake. Um, because it's it's the birthday of, of the brother who mm. has badly died in, in Afghanistan. And, um, and so I always thought that this line was going to be a sort of soothing, pacifying thing that, you know, the, the, the love and the desperation would be there in it and the son would hear his father's suffering and would agree to kind of give it another shot. But the way that Tim did it, the first time that we, we did the scene, because we read through the scripts um, over dinner uh, a couple of weeks before we shot the film um, and chatted about it and blah, blah, blah. But the first time we did it on the set, the way that this line came out was this real kind of fury it was a, it was a, a firm order that yeah. this giving to this son and it completely scared the shit out of me the first <laughs> time he did it um 
And actually, subsequently, every time he did it, you know, he put such power into what he was doing mm. that it totally stopped me in my tracks as I was trying to leave the room. Yeah. I think it's a great example because it's my favourite moment of the film, which is only a 15-minute film, but um, because it sort of comes out of nowhere and it's both hilarious in the fact that the line is so sort of mundane and polite and English, but the... the level of emotion and the the force with which he delivers it gives it this whole completely different meaning that I as a writer had never considered and of course I'm working with one of you know the the actors that I respect most in the world mm. he's bringing me something that I could never have thought of um and so I think so that, can I just just so there's no negotiation there he just when when you did the take he the first time he did it that was boom that was it, yeah. And I was Brilliant. just like, holy shit, that is so much more powerful than anything that I could have told you to do. And let's <laughs> that, you know. And I uh, think that's the important lesson. I think people listening should, should take that on board is that, I mean, and again, you, you know, talking to you myself, it's kind of reminding me that film, we're always told, is a collaborative medium. Mm. And, and, and maybe there's a little, there is also a little bit of myth-making in terms of the way, you know, the way that um, Hitchcock talks about actors, which is, you know, yeah. just move yeah. them around like cattle. Yeah, um, which again, I think I don't think he literally meant that, but it's become that. Um, so people can can easily overlook them as if to say, well, they're annoyance, and just when we're ready to go, get them on set, get them to act, and get them off. Yeah. Um, but actually, like you say, that there is that <laughs> their job, their job is to try and make the the, the, the bring the characters to life. Yeah. So if the, if yeah. they see what the character is up to, and it's not something you've seen, then you've got to try and think, well, what, how, ask why, and then mm. maybe like you like you did accept that maybe that's there and you just didn't see it and there's nothing wrong with that. Mostly. Um, you know, I, I, as I say, I think it, it makes the film for me. It's, it's that moment that, <coughs> where, you know, actually sometimes you have to explode in order to, to ground things, you know, to, to put things back on the level that they need to be at. Because you know, the situation's falling apart and he saves the situation, but he does it in a way that's very aggressive and very... Um, angry. Well, no, it's, it's that classic thing, isn't it? It's not what you say, it's how you say it. And, exactly. you know, in terms of speech, you know, people talk about speeches. Well, it's it's only a moment, isn't it, in a conversation, but how he says it then sets a tone, doesn't it? Totally, totally. Now, look, uh, we're, 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 we're running out of time on the podcast. Right. Not, not the audience would know that, but I know. Um, so, uh, you're, you're, you've delivered your first draft. Yeah. You're, you're obviously waiting on whatever happens next in terms of the subsequent drafts and how this film developed. So we're talking about Miraculous Isabella. But it'd be remiss to ask you one last question, which was, given this was your first sort of commission gig, yeah. what, give, us, give us one lesson learned that you'll be taking forward into sort of future jobs that you get as a writer. Oh, golly. Uh, lesson learned. I think um, this is the first time, because you, you asked a question earlier, actually, that I didn't really answer, um, but about the biopic thing and how, how it is that writing a biopic uh, was different to, to writing something that I've just sort of pulled out of my head, if you see what I mean. Yeah. Uh, i say something else, but... Um, yeah, I think that because of the research element, it gave me the opportunity to really think about what story I wanted to tell and how I wanted to tell it in advance of writing it. And I've never been as disciplined in terms of doing these timelines, in terms of... You know, I got multicolored cards and had different story strands. And I really, 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 really planned 
what was going on before I started writing the script. Um, and I think that's the biggest lesson for me because when it came to actually writing the script, I'd already, I'd already watched the scenes in my head. I already knew what they looked like. I knew where they took place. I knew how people felt in the scenes because I'd already imagined them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so when it came to the actual writing, really my, my first like let rip draft actually uh, I was interrupted by Sundance, so I had to go away um, for a couple of weeks while I was doing it. But if I take that pause out, basically it took me two weeks to write. So I was writing about 10 pages a day, Blimey. Uh, which I've never come anywhere close to before. But you, but you, <laughs> like you say, you'd done 10 pages of preparation in time That's... before you sat down in that sort of two-week window, as it were. Yeah, yeah. So, I, you know, I had uh, a month and a half maybe two months. Well, actually, I mean, you know, I started researching as soon as he started talking about it. So I'd just done a lot of research. I'd done a lot of planning. I knew what the shape of the story was going to be. I knew how it ended and therefore how it should start. I just knew a lot more than I've ever known before writing not, this. Not, not to be glib then, just thinking about what you just told me, from, from my side looking in, it's sort of like a lesson learned there would be there is a value in research to making to writing a screenplay would be would be an ob- I mean it sounds bleeding obvious but yeah no no I mean completely um, but yeah just how much easier it is and how uh, I was able to get out of my own way and silence that critical voice inside that sort of said well this isn't very good hmm. because I was just too busy writing you know I'd finish one scene I'd go okay well that's done what's the next scene oh it's that. And I would spend 20 minutes kind of wandering around talking to myself. Yeah. And then I would sit down and write it. Brilliant. And then I would, okay, well, that's that one done. What's the next one? So I was never having to be like, oh, you know, what happens next? Like, where do I go from here? Because it, it was already laid out for me. So in a way, I was just following the path that I'd set for myself. Um, and so now I would, going forward, I, I don't want to start writing a script until I've got all the scenes mapped out until I know exactly what the, the dynamics between the relationships are. And cause I think, you know, then it becomes, uh, and I don't want to sound clear either, but in a, in a way it becomes painting by numbers, you know? Mm. Um, and obviously within that you're, you're coming up with new things and your subconscious is chucking in fresh ideas and maybe the scene doesn't go exactly the way that you were planning it to go. But by having that framework, you get the chance to color outside the lines um, but at least the lines are there. You know roughly where you're headed. No, no, um, no. And I think you know, in, in in simple sort of project project management terms, you know, you're sort of preparing to get it done as opposed to failing to prepare. You know, it's <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you know? I think if you look at the overall making of a film, pre-production is development and pre-production are the most important thing. And so if you take that into like a, a microcosmic fractal of that within the writing of the script, I think that the, the planning is the most important thing. Yeah. Uh, so I guess that's that's what I'm saying. Is, no, it's brilliant. Now, look, I'm going to have to draw a close to the podcast. Um, oh. I can only thank you for your time. It's been really, really interesting to look at look at a script at this at this stage in the process of the filmmaking. And I think sometime in the, in the, in the not-too-distant future, it would be great to have you back on to talk about what happened with your screenplay in the run-up to and subsequently the shoot? Yeah, well, that would be that would be amazing. It's it, it's really nice to have the chance to actually say this stuff out loud to 
to somebody who's actually listening from a similar point of view because you know sometimes you, you talk about this stuff and people look at you like you're completely mad so yeah. uh, <laughs> none, none, none of us, none of us are curing cancer or you know splitting atoms. But you know it, sure. it's our, it's our work and it be, and it's hard when we're trying to do it. So it's, yes. it's it's nice to share that feeling. So yeah, no, I thank you very much. Well, thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it. If you don't already subscribe to Britflix, just sign up for free at iTunes, and you'll get the next episode right after we launch it. Or follow at Britflix on Twitter for links to the podcast to stream from the website directly. Thank you.